I'll bet you love feeling safe, right? I know I do. And who could seem like a safer person to be around than an old lady from your church? It turns out that just about anybody would be safer if that little old lady turned out to be Mary Jane Fonder. Stay with me and we'll learn why Mary Jane went from seeming safe to being savage. Hey, and welcome to The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator, Lori Morrison. And if you're craving stories from the intersection of faith and true crime, let's join forces to answer our calling to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. We'll learn practical ways to do just that after we dive into today's case. This is Season 3, Episode 11. Our book this week is Love Me or Else by Colin McAvoy and Lynn Olinoff. Here to talk with us about what we can take away from this case is our own unlovely Truth Tribe chaplain, Lori Prather. Now, this week's case is a doozy. It happened in Bucks County, Pennsylvania back in 2008, and that area was really more rural than its urban neighbors, Allentown and Bethlehem at the time. Everybody felt so safe there. Most small-town people do, I think. Not much happened there, and that's how everybody seemed to really like it. And like a lot of small towns, local churches played a huge role in the social lives of the people who lived there. It gave them an identity, a community. Judy Zellner arrived at Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church on Wednesday, January 23rd to clean the building as she had been doing for years. The church was undergoing a bit of a transition as the church pastor, Gregory Shreves, had let their secretary go, and Judy didn't know who the new secretary was, so she wasn't sure what to expect when she arrived. She went into the office and was horrified to find the body of a woman lying in a pool of blood. Now, can you even imagine walking into your church, looking around for someone, and this is what you find? There was a cordless phone on the desk, so Judy grabbed it, and she ran outside to call 911 in case whoever had done this to this poor woman was still in the building. Paramedics arrived quickly, and it didn't take them long to see that the victim, who was still alive, had been shot. As they hurried to get the injured woman out to the ambulance, Judy was able to finally get a good look at her. It was not the new secretary at all, but her friend, Rhonda Smith. And again, can you even imagine not only the horror of finding a victim of a shooting, but then to realize that that person is your friend. And she had come there to help. That small decision to be there that day may have cost her her life. Judy told the police that she didn't know of anyone who might want to hurt Rhonda. Was it a robbery gone wrong? It's possible, but there didn't seem to be anything missing from the church. Rhonda was known to struggle with her mental health, so police had to consider the possibility that she had shot herself. But making an assumption that just because someone has struggled with mental health issues or really any kind of health issues, that that necessarily makes them suicidal can really derail an investigation. So it's good that they're looking in that direction as long as they don't get stuck thinking that's what had to have happened. Especially since there was no gun recovered at the scene. That makes suicide fairly unlikely. Although it was possible that maybe Rhonda's parents had stopped by to check on her, found her body remove the gun, trying to, you know, not have that stigma of her being a suicide. They completely denied that. As the word of Rhonda's death spread among the congregation, everybody was shocked and incredibly saddened. Everyone, that is, except Mary Jane Fonder. She was known to be a bit of an odd duck, 
But her inappropriate reaction to finding out that a fellow congregant had just been murdered was kind of written off as just Mary Jane being Mary Jane. Of course, as an investigator, I see it as red flag number one. Pastor Shreves had a theory. He felt it most likely had to be one of Rhonda's exes. He knew that she'd had several troubled relationships because he'd counseled her on a couple of occasions. Police began looking in that direction, but those leads led absolutely nowhere. So they asked the pastor, could he think of anyone who might have had a problem with Rhonda? He paused, unsure if he should even mention what he thought was the very odd behavior on the part of one of the women in the congregation. He told police that Mary Jane Fonder had been calling him a lot, three or four times a week. To me, that is red flag number two. I certainly don't call my pastor three or four times a week, and I bet you don't either. She'd also gotten into his house once and left him food. That is completely inappropriate and really rather bizarre. But for some reason, this all made the police look closer at Pastor Shreves as a suspect. I suppose they thought that maybe he was just trying to get the focus on anybody but himself, but he probably could have picked a better person to try to throw suspicion on than an old lady. And it's true that Rhonda had struggled for years with paranoia and was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Joining the church and then the choir had given her a sense of purpose and a circle of friends. And one day she stood up in front of the congregation to thank them for all they had done for her. Her fellow church members were so happy to hear that she felt so loved by them. Everyone except one, and you only get one guess who that was. You're right, it was Mary Jane Fonder. Thanks so much for listening and being a part of our Unlovely Truth Tribe. You can go join a special dedicated Facebook group. Just go to the Unlovely Truth, look at groups, and you'll find the Unlovely Truth Tribe. I would love to have you in there. Love to give you the opportunity to help shape the content that is coming in the podcast. You can also send me an email if you've got ideas. Lori, that's L-O-R-I, at theunlovelytruth.com. I want to hear what you want to see in the future. Most everyone in the congregation at Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church saw Mary Jane as odd, but harmless. She didn't have many close friends at the church because people were put off by her habit of talking a mile a minute, constantly switching topics, and seeming totally uninterested in anybody but herself. Let me take that back. There was one church member Mary Jane was very interested in, Pastor Gregory Shreves. For his part, the pastor just saw her as one more older lady in his church family. She saw him with definite romantic interest, and one day she decided to tell him so. Pastor Shreves was totally blindsided, but let her know that a romantic relationship between the two of them was completely out of the question. That's when Mary Jane started calling, and calling, and calling. That's when she walked into his home and left food for him. This is red flag number three. This is not normal behavior. And the pastor asked his church board for help in dealing with her, but they made excuses to not get involved. I wasn't there, so I hate to criticize, but I see that as being their duty to protect their pastor. They should have stepped up, in my opinion, and talked to her. They might have been able to head off a lot of what came next. When she could no longer get into his house, Mary Jane left groceries on the pastor's porch. He confronted her and gently asked her to stop. 
Instead of being embarrassed and feeling bad that she'd made him feel awkward, Mary Jane became enraged. And that's red flag number four. So even though the police had initially dismissed Pastor Shreve's concerns about Mary Jane, they did decide that they needed to take a look at her. She got a little more interesting to them when they discovered that she owned a gun. She got a lot more interesting when they found out Mary Jane had been the prime suspect in the 1993 disappearance of her father. So we're up to five red flags now, at least. The frumpy 65-year-old was starting to look more like a possible suspect than anyone would have thought possible. And the red flags, they just kept coming. Mary Jane had a history of mental instability herself, which by itself, that doesn't prove anything. But you have to look at these things along with all of the other circumstances, the totality of everything that you're finding out. As the police had searched for Mary Jane's father years before, they found the body of a dog in her freezer. I'm going to give that one a whole truckload of red flags because who does that? Then they found out she had once threatened to shoot a coworker. She threatened a man who had cut down some trees on her property. And when interviewed by the police and asked about her gun, Mary Jane told them she'd thrown it out of her car one day years ago. Red flag, red flag, red flag. Nobody does that. At this point, police no longer considered Rhonda Smith's murder as a whodunit. It now was a how can we prove it. Given Mary Jane's love of talking, they decided to bring her in and let her do just that. They talked about her gun and the people she'd threatened. They talked about Rhonda. And the more Mary Jane talked, the guiltier she seemed. Suddenly, Mary Jane seemed to realize how bad things were looking for her. And the sweet old lady who just wanted to help morphed into the rage-filled harpy who had screamed insults at Pastor Shreve's. As I read more of the police questioning and Mary Jane's responses, to me, reading them as an investigator, they are really so very telling. She continually referred to Rhonda as that lady. Now, this was someone who was in her church choir with her. It's very cold. It's an attempt to distance herself. And it's a great big red flag. Just over six weeks after Rhonda's death, a small miracle happened. A father and son who were out enjoying time fishing together found a gun. It turned out to be Mary Jane's gun. You know, the one that she said she'd gotten rid of years ago. And it also turned out to be the gun that had killed Rhonda. I don't like coincidences, and neither did the police. Mary Jane was arrested. Some people were surprised, and some were most definitely not surprised. But everyone had to find a way to come to terms with what had happened in their small community. Some people felt that she was a nice person who had just lost her way. A lot of people very naturally were angry. Forgiveness is easier to give to strangers than to one of our own. Pastor Shreves was quoted in the book saying something that really resonated with me. He believed that Mary Jane's arrest and subsequent conviction should be a sad thing. He's right. It was the right thing. It was the just thing. But still, it was a sad thing. Mary Jane was sentenced to life in prison where she died in 2018. What I can't help but think is, could things have been different if more people had seen all the red flags as they were happening that we can now see in hindsight? We're going to check in with today's guest, the Unlovely Truth Tribe chaplain, Lori Prather, and get her thoughts on that. It is always such a joy to have our Unlovely Truth Tribe chaplain, 
Lori Brather, join us. So welcome, welcome. Thank you. It's so good to be here. It's been a while, so I'm excited. It has. And, you know, I'm just going to throw you to the wolves. We are going to dive <laughs> right into the deep end, right here off the bat, um, because there, oh, there's so much going on in this book. And first, there's this quote from Pastor Shreves that just really stuck with me. He said, we talk about sin and grace and evil, and here it is right in our midst, and we don't want to talk about it when it happens here on our doorstep. So there, I know there's a lot going, going on in that quote, but um, yes. what, what do you think of that idea of, you know, we talk about these things theoretically all the time, right? but when it's a practical matter, all of a sudden we don't want to talk about it. Right. Um, you know, I'll just let's offend people right from the beginning. I would say <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of things in the church that we don't talk about. There's a lot of things that are uncomfortable, and we've sort of in the American church found ways to get around those. And we want church to be a happy place, and we want it to feel good and comfortable. And there's nothing wrong with that. At certain times, but if we are always avoiding the uncomfortable topics, then we are really not following the example of Jesus. Jesus did not avoid uncomfortable topics. He dove right into them. Um, and so I feel like the pastor is exactly right, that it was right there under their nose and they didn't see it. And it sounds like even when it did happen, no one wanted to talk about it. No one wanted to deal with it because it's uncomfortable. And I feel like this is the perfect quote for you and I, because we have said this, we're going to bring up a word we've used a lot, messy. Um, <laughs> church is messy. Life is messy. People are messy. Um, Amen. And Jesus followers are just as messy because we may love Jesus, but we're still people and we still mess up and we're still flawed and broken. So I feel like if you're, if you look at your church or your church community or your faith walk, and it seems really clean, that should be your first red flag. If there's not some messiness in that part of your life, then I would challenge you that you may not really be living authentically in that walk or having real conversations. And that's sort of what first pops up from just what your listeners can get out of this is we can all ask ourselves, when's the last time we had a hard conversation, an uncomfortable conversation? When was the last time life felt messy in a good way, you know, because we were digging in and following the way of Jesus to help someone to figure something out? There's so much out there. You know, this world is a hot mess right now. And I oh, feel goodness. like too many of us, we just don't want to deal with it. It's too much. It's too hard. I get that. I'm, you know, equally guilty of it. But when I think of this whole situation, I mean, it's kind of the poster story of what it looks like when you just turn your back, stick your head in the sand because you don't want to deal with it. And I'm so glad that you brought up red flags. I didn't have to be the one to do it because we're going to we're going to get into that. Um, you know, there's enough red flags here to make you feel like you were on a drill team. And I'm going to make some people mad, too, here. But I think a lot of times Christians, and, and myself included, we can be really bad at spotting red flags or excusing mm -hmm. bad behavior among our church members right. rather than confronting it when we do see it. Why, why are we so bad at that? I think one of it is we want to believe the best. You know, like when we walk into that community, we want to believe the best in people. 
I also think if you kind of look at the other side of it, we often tend to, in those types of communities, only show people our best. There's a lot of not being vulnerable. So sometimes you're not really seeing the true person. And so you're not seeing enough of the picture, maybe. I don't think that's the case with this story, but I do think sometimes. And then I think we're all guilty of being in situations where people have been falsely accused or there's been gossip. And so we tend to almost put up a wall of, I don't want to be the person who gets it wrong. I don't want to be the person who is accused of gossip. But here's the thing. If gossip is the only way to address the situation, then you're not addressing it correctly and you're not addressing it biblically. Gossip and dealing with someone and helping them are two different things. I think sometimes too, we, we as a people are fairly selfish. And so sometimes we just have our blinders on and yes, we see it happen or we have a notion that it happened, but we don't want to give it enough time because I'm too busy. I don't have time to deal with that. Like she might have issues, but I don't want to become, <laughs> I don't want to become the person who has to deal with their issues. I'm, I'll be honest. I know I've said that before. Like, oh, I know that person needs help. But, uh, I don't want it to be me. Well, if everyone says that, then that person never gets help. And so I yes. think it's more of an issue of, again, it kind of comes back to that messiness. I don't want to get in the mess of someone else's life. I think we've sort of been trained in church unintentionally that your business is your business and their business is their business. And really, you know, one reason I think a lot of people are drawn to certain churches is for the community. They want to be a part of something. And, you know, Mary Jane really felt that people didn't exactly embrace her (laughs) and she of course, like a lot of um, people like her, blamed it all on the other people instead of owning any of her own flaws. But, you know, I think we do all have a responsibility to make sure that our church doesn't become very clicky um, and leave people feeling excluded. Absolutely. But so, you, you know, you've got that tension, like you said, between that, but then you've got this person who wants to be included, yet her behavior is what drives everybody away from her. Right. And she she won't own that. Yep. And I think for that, sometimes you have to take a step back, which I don't think anyone did in this scenario, and look at what was her life like. What has brought her to this point? And I keep being reminded of someone that I had encountered at a church, and there was a lot of trauma in her life. So in the beginning, we did exactly what you're talking about. We, we made a lot of excuses because there was a lot of real trauma, which had kind of stunted some, you know, mental and emotional development. But eventually, I had a very hard conversation with her. And I remember this conversation and saying to her, people who are my friends know that I love them unconditionally, but I will also share the truth with them. Always, even when they I know that. for it. <laughs> and if that's something that you don't like because there had been some conflicts around this concept, I understand. It's okay if you don't want me to be your friend anymore, but you need to understand that this is how I interact with people and truth is important to me. And 
If all you want is to be told what you want to hear, that I'm not the right person for you anymore because that's just not who I am. And that was a really hard conversation. And I don't know, you know, that it necessarily fixed things, but I think of that in this scenario, no one ever spoke truth to her. No one ever tried to help her and say, hey, Mary Jane, you know, when you do this, that makes people uncomfortable or that might have you ever thought no one even tried that I can tell. It doesn't mean she would have listened to it or responded to it, but that response would have told them something too. Like, okay, we've all tried to have this conversation with her and it's not working. It's not getting through. I feel like people did just say, well, she's weird and ignored it. But at the same time, we are called as believers to, to, share one another's burdens. And I do feel like no one tried to ever step in and just figure out what what makes her this way. Why is socialization so hard for her? Um, you know, they may have figured out some of those things just in figuring out her story that were bigger red flags that nobody knew because nobody oh. had those conversations with her. And that's the thing. You see... When you look at the totality of her life, as presented in the book, of course, you know, right. not everything, but that's what that's what we know. That's what we've got. There were some isolated instances. Right. But nobody knew the full picture. Certainly nobody right. from the church. Um, she had had a difficult life. She'd had a lot of struggles. But she had also had some times where she had been confronted, not necessarily the right model, you know, not the truth right. and love. It was mostly just truth and, hey, you've <laughs> got to stop that. She lashed out very violently. But the people at the church didn't know that. They, d- they didn't find out right. until after the police investigation, of course, that she was the leading suspect in her father's disappearance. And I don't believe his body was ever found. She had confronted um, a co-worker that had had to speak some truth into her life and threatened to kill her, threatened to shoot her with a gun. And then here we are with this situation with Rhonda. So, you know, you and I have talked about before that tension. Yes, she had some difficulties and we can sympathize with that. But she also made some extremely heinous choices. And, And so, you know, And especially for someone who claimed the name of Jesus. Right. Who should have known that you don't threaten to kill people. That sort of thing. Right. And so, you know, you have to wonder where, where does it become not, not excusing, but saying, well, hey, we can see how this happened because of all these things in her life. Or where do you say this person completely walked away from the truth? completely walked away from any sort of commitment to God and chose to do evil acts. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I've taught my kids from the earliest age, never judge someone without understanding their story, you know, always walk in their shoes type of thing. Um, So I just think that's important in general. It doesn't mean that we excuse the behavior because we all know that trauma and childhood dysfunction, it's not an excuse. There's always a way to work through it, to overcome it, to, you know, learn from it. So uh, yeah, I would never say that, well, if they've had a hard life, okay, they can do whatever they want. Of course not. 
Um, and as you shared all those isolated incidents, it just makes me wonder, like, when she threatened the coworker, it sounds like nothing came of that. Slap on what the, would have happened. Slap on the wrist kind of stuff. Right. And it does make me wonder, had someone in the church pushed a little bit more, would she have escalated to the point where they would have seen like, oh, we need, like, she needs real help. This is not a normal reaction. This is not just her being an oddball or goofy or weird or antisocial. There's clearly something going on there. Can we get her help? And, you know, I also don't want it to sound like we're just blaming all the people in the church, that if they had done something different, the outcome would have been different. She could have gone to another church, who knows, and done the same thing. But I think the point is here that when you get that that red flag that's super obvious or that discernment to just not ignore it, to try something, to do something, you may not be able to fix it. You know, the, the outcome might have still been the same, but at least they would have tried. They probably would have figured out it was her way faster if people truly knew what she was capable of, capable of and had seen those sort of deep-rooted evil reactions from her. But they all just ignored her. And like I think you have said earlier, just kind of, oh, she's just an, just an old lady. What could harm could she do? <laughs> oh, exactly. And, you know, evil yeah. can take on any face that it wants to. Absolutely. And you're right. I don't I don't mean to pile on uh, the church members and everything. But just as an example for people listening, the church did, in my opinion, miss a big opportunity when the yep. pastor came to them and said, you know, she's harassing me. She's doing all these things, which at, at the time the law was probably very different, but today what she was doing would have been stalking for sure. Right. Would have, oh, would have, 100%. Would have been considered criminal behavior. And so when the pastor came to his board and said, I need you guys to talk to her because me talking to her is not doing any good. Right. Um, and she blew up at him. How ungrateful he was and all this stuff, you know, again, huge red flag. But if those board members had stepped up and said, you know, we are shepherds here. That's part of our responsibility. Right. And not only do we need to protect our pastor, because, boy, they have so many pressures on them. They shouldn't have to deal with this. But we need to protect her. Right. Because this behavior is troubling. You know, right. it could be something small. It could be something big. But we should come around our sister and say, you know, do you see Absolutely. the issue? How can we help you? Absolutely. Yeah, we keep talking about how to protect everyone else. But at the same time, you're absolutely right that no one really looked at her and said, this is a broken, sad, at the very least, person. And we're all just kind of laughing her off and ignoring her and sloughing her off, which probably contributed ultimately to the outcome that everyone had just sort of written her off. But yeah, no one, it seems, looked at her and said, just out of genuine love and care, like, what is going on here? And how can we help her feel loved? And how can we help her? It may not have worked, but you're right. Then they would have seen that. I also feel like the word that just keeps coming up is boundaries. Yes. Boundaries, boundaries. That's what the pastor was trying to do. He was trying to set boundaries. And again, I think 
in the American culture church, we have come, especially with pastors, that they are to be available 24-7. I know, because I've been one. <laughs> I could say that. You know, if the phone rings, I have to answer it. Because what if someone's in the hospital? You know, it's, and I don't, I don't say that to complain, but we sometimes forget that pastors too are people and they have lives and they have families and they have needs. Yes. And while it is a calling, I understand that it is also a job. And if your job asks you to be on call 24 seven, you probably wouldn't appreciate that. And, you know, if it is, you need to set boundaries. <laughs> um, and so I just feel like that's, that's the glaring word for me here is that the boundaries in this church were, were off the boundaries between her and the pastor, the boundaries, even almost between the pastor and the board, the boundaries between the congregation and her, like all the boundaries were either not set or too strict. I mean, you know, just in general, all the boundaries were off. They really needed to go read that boundaries book. Oh, so Dr. Henry Cloud, if you haven't yes, read it, Dr. Henry Cloud, go get it. Love, <laughs> it's amazing. Love Dr. Henry Cloud. <laughs> yes. Well, and you know, speaking about boundaries, I think a lot of it starts with how we teach our kids to interact with people. And you know, once upon a time, many, many moons ago, <laughs> you and I worked together with kids in, yep. in ministry, and I see a problem where we excuse bad behavior at the church to Ooh. to our children. I mean, the bad behavior of adults, we excuse that to our children. Right. You know, we'll say things like, oh, give so-and-so a hug. Or they'll be upset about something that was said to them. And we'll say, oh, I'm sure they didn't mean it that way. And we totally invalidate their ability to sense yep. danger or at least that something isn't quite right. So how do we just... How do we adjust our perspective that maybe the adult that our kid doesn't want to hug or um, doesn't want to be spoken to the way this person speaks to them, um, that it's the adults that are out of line and not our kids? Absolutely. I think dismissive is the word I think of, you know, that we are often dismissive of our kids' perceptions and feelings one of the things I always talked about with my kids, and it again comes back to that. First of all, put yourself in their place, ask some questions. Don't just assume that you know everything about their life. So that was the first step. But I've always told my kids, nowhere in the Bible have I ever read that it says, thou shall be a doormat. <laughs> I love it doesn't that. say that. <laughs> There's no doormat verse. It is always okay in love to speak your truth. It is okay to go to someone. And I remember this very particular, and this was with two kids, but I feel like if we can get it with kids and we can, we should, it can translate to what we talk about with adults. And I remember telling our daughter, you need to go to her and say, I would love to be your friend. And as soon as you do this, this, and this, as soon as you stop making fun of me or whatever the things were, then I will absolutely be your friend again. I said, because what that does is it validated my daughter that, yes, the feelings you're feeling are real. You, because her big issue was, but I'm supposed to love everyone. Jesus, and I said, you're still loving her. You're putting it in her court. You're allowing her to make the decision. She can make those choices and make those changes and be your friend or not. 
you're still going to be nice to her. You're not going to be mean or snub her. You're just not going to play on the playground with her. And I feel like that sort of set the tone in our family of there's always validation in how you feel, but let's talk about it. First of all, I think that's key is a safe space to talk because sometimes we, not just kids, we will, our perception or our feelings that way can become judgmental. And so I think it's good to have that conversation of, are you judging someone or are you truly hurt or upset by what they say? Talking about why did that hurt you? Why did that bother you? I think is also important. But I think the most important thing we can do is to teach our kids to be cautious and to understand that no one is perfect. And I do think it comes from this generation. My husband and I have talked about this a lot, sort of the generation above us, our parents' generation. You didn't always, um, and I'm stereotyping, but there was a general sense of we didn't really deal with a lot of conflict openly. We didn't talk about emotions. So we never really knew much about our parents' finance. We didn't, you know, all these things that our kids, it's very different when I look at our relationship with our children. And generationally, I see that and I hear that often from people, you know, in these different generations. And so I feel like what it created was the sense of every adult is right. Every adult, you have to respect them. And, And while there are pieces of that that I understand and I get, there's some real danger there. And we know that it that is the basis of many abuse cases. Oh, yeah. You trust somebody or the yes. position they were in. And so we keep using this word. There is tension in that. You know, um, my husband, I always tease him because I was also a high school teacher back in the day that, oh, I'm so glad I never had you as my student because you were a spitfire. And he always says, no, 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 it wouldn't have been an issue because I would have respected you. You would have earned my respect. I've seen you. I know how you react with students. So his thing always has been, I don't have to give my respect to anyone. They have to earn it from me. And once you earn it, you got it. And I will be as respectful. And I feel like I always thought that was so ridiculous. But now that in my later years, and when I think of this topic, that's actually not a terrible way to approach life. Just because you're an adult doesn't mean as a kid, I have to do everything you say. What is your role in my life? How do you treat me? And so I do think that we have a long way to go. I think this generation's done a little better. I think the next generation may have swung the (laughs) the pendulum a little too far. (laughs) Well, I'm just offending everyone today. Um, But again, it's it's a balance of, yes, there's respect and and understanding that there's wisdom from our elders and not just being dismissive of them, which is what happened with Mary Jane. She was an elder and they dismissed her. So, you know, I think she's a little bit of proof of that. But also we all need to know that our feelings are worthy. Our perspective is important. Um, And I think it comes down to safe space for communication. And unfortunately, I don't know how often that happens in church communities because it takes a lot of authenticity and vulnerability and that takes time and it's just not always there and it takes everyone participating in that. And unfortunately, you know, it's, that doesn't always exist. And if you don't have authenticity and you don't have vulnerability and you don't have trust, none of these things can happen the way, you know, they're meant to. Well, 
so you are not alone in your offense. <laughs> I will jump in and I will say something that will probably offend a lot of people. But I, I want everybody, I want everybody to look at this as more of a challenge. Right. Let's all just really kind of reevaluate. Let's look at our church, and your church may be awesome at lots and lots of things, but no church is perfect. So let's just look and let's say, are we having authentic communications? Do we have that safe space for someone to come forward if they have concerns? Do we wrap our arms around people that are waving red flags like crazy and saying, I need help, I need help, I need help. So just take some time, take an honest look at what's going on in your church and say, do I need to talk to leadership and say, hey, I think here's an area that we can grow in. And here's why I think it's important. Absolutely. So there and, you go. If, I'm, if I made you mad, at least, <laughs> at least I want it to spur you to go take some action. So absolutely. And, and I feel like I feel like this has been a little bit of a doom and gloom session. We're usually way more happy and fun than this. So let me just say that there are a lot of people out there doing it correctly. Yes. Um, and I think what's most important, and you've kind of just touched on this, is learn from your mistakes. You know, there's no perfect parent. There's no perfect Christian. There's no perfect church community. We understand that. So we are not here to make everyone feel like they're failures or like that church just completely failed. But if we don't look at their story and learn from it, if we don't ask ourselves how could they have tried to do something that we don't know what the outcome would be, but how could they have maybe done it differently? How could they have walked in the way of Jesus a little bit differently in their interactions with her? And I think that's to what you're saying. That's a good question to ask is when I interact with people in my church, is there someone I'm ignoring who, who needs attention and who needs love? Is there someone that rubs me the wrong way and I need to figure out, is it me? Is it because I don't want to get messy or is it because there's something with that person? And again, the answer is not ignoring it. It's figuring out how do we get that person help? Um, So I think asking some of those questions, like you say, are are the best step to learn from this this story, um, this experience of how we can walk better in our communities. And to honor Rhonda Smith's life in all of this, I would love it if listeners would share any experiences they've had where they've done what we're talking about. They've wrapped their arms around somebody or right. they've they've talked with leadership and been able to make a difference. You know, share those stories with us. Find me on Facebook at The Unlovely Truth or on Instagram, The Unlovely Truth Podcast. And let Lori and I know the the positive stories where you've made a difference, you've made a good change, and then hopefully that'll spur everybody else on to do the same. So thank you. Thank you for joining us. It's always wonderful. And uh, hopefully we will talk to you again soon. The Bible verse that I want to kind of meditate on and really, really dive into for this case is from James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. And I'm going to read from the English Standard Version. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. 
You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, do all of us go out and actually commit murder? No. Do we fight and quarrel because we don't get what we want? Of course we all do. And this verse makes it very, very clear. It's not that we have to take from others. We have to ask. It says we don't have because we don't ask. Or if we do ask, we're asking wrongly for our own selfish gain. So when you desire something, I really, really encourage you, ask for the right reasons. Ask for things that you're going to be using to glorify God and help others. Then we're not going to have those desires that lead to fights and quarreling, and in this case, to murder. Now, our practical action step, this week it might not be an easy one, but it is so necessary, especially in our churches. I think today's case has removed all doubt that toxic and even dangerous people can be in our midst, in our social circle, in our community, in our church. So I want us to stop making excuses for them just because they claim the name of Jesus. If you've spotted a Mary Jane Fonder type person in your circle of influence, talk to someone. If they're in church, talk to someone in leadership. If they don't want to address it, talk to someone else. Red flags need to be addressed before tragedies happen. Or we're just going to see more books with stories like Rhonda Smith's. And her story reminds me of one of my very first episodes where the pastor was actually the predator. There's a link to that episode in the show notes, as well as other links to great resources that'll help us really work through some of the topics we talked about this week. You can also find a link to sign up for my email list. And if you do, you'll get your copy of a free resource to start your journey as a PI, a person of impact. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex and the artwork by Shelby Highland. See you all next week. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.